0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Brain Food Show, broadcast live on YouTube, also available as a podcast. Go download us as a podcast. That's the way. Well, I'm sure you've got your preferred ways of listening, and we've got your preferred way of listening as well. And that's why I podcast. <laughs> if you'd like to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called. Enough rambling. I'm here with David. How's it going? Going great. Monday morning, bright and early, mm-hmm. or yep. Sunday night where you are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, kind of Monday morning, but like 1.40 a.m.
0: <laughs> Dude, I don't
1: know why you like these crazy early hours since it's, it's a bit much.
0: All right. 10.37 yeah. on a Monday morning is pretty perfect for me, but
1: you like... Well, it, it gets the, you know, the, the, the girls are asleep, so I'm not making noise. It's good. It's good quiet. Oh, <laughs> uh, what's up today? What, what's on the agenda? We are looking at the fascinating origin of everyday things, and we're going to do two episodes today for people who want a lengthy listening experience. We're going um, to broadcast both of them in a row. Yeah, yeah. And so we're going to, gonna, uh, at all. some point. <laughs> <laughs> Covering like the shopping cart, the paperclip, uh, I don't remember. It's like 30 pages long. <laughs> well, there's that one dude I, I read through the notes. Oh, yeah, yeah. It. That guy. invented like I swear, everything. This yeah, but the safety pin is the thing. But we're going to talk a lot about him because he's he was a pretty cool guy that no one's ever heard of and didn't really make any money off his many many inventions. Even though even though not just the safety pin, but like many people will have multiple of his inventions in their house. It's very cool. This was the dude who was selling all his patents, right? Yeah, he just sold them and then would just move on <laughs> to the next thing and stay like poor this. most of his life. Yeah, no, he was a, he was awesome. Good
0: ending yeah. though. I, I I don't want to spoil the ending because well, I normally yeah. feel on like bravery shows that and then they all died and no one remembers them. And this
1: guy's got a yeah. good happiness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Not totally. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, well, legacy-wise. Anyway, before we get into the quick facts, which I think is how we'll start today's show, I will mention, if you do, choose our preferred way of you listening to the show and grab it as a podcast and leave us a review on whatever major platform. Uh, when we get to 1,000 reviews, we're going to give away a $1,000 Amazon gift card, yeah. which you can get like a laptop or something for that. Or like a... Yeah. I feel like you probably can get like a 940-inch TV these days. TV's got cheap. Um, yeah. Not a guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> you probably can't. I don't think that exists. It would be the size of a house. Yeah, so go do that if you fancy it. There's an Amazon voucher. It's just a little contest we're running. It should be fun. Enough promo. Quick fact.
1: Are we doing a quick yeah. fact? We're going to start with the paper clip. So for people who don't know, that's actually the, you know, the, the common, like when you think of a paperclip, when everyone thinks of a paperclip, it's called the gem paperclip. Some people don't know that. And so, like a gem. It's like a no, we'll get to why it's called that in a bit. But for just for starters, we're going to dispel a myth because almost everyone, including if you look up in encyclopedias and stuff, uh, unless, you know, like the modern, you know, digital ones where people can edit, but you know, <laughs> look up encyclopedia Britannica and whatnot. We'll say Johan Baller, he was a Norwegian guy, invented the paperclip. And this has been a thing since I think it was around the 1950s when everyone was giving this guy credit. And to the point, hilariously, there is a 23-foot tall paperclip in Sandvika, Norway, dedicated in honor of Valair that was put there in 1989. And this guy, again, had nothing to do with the gem paperclip. And then on top of that, he has a commemorative stamp that was made also in his honor. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. This this guy's given all the credit. So why how did he get the credit in the Dude, first I place? So, I,
0: wait, I want to know because I'm just going to start taking credit for stuff. Be like, yeah, yeah, the car, yeah,
1: no, I anything mean, to say I
0: invented it, but you know, if you make
1: that with assumption this, <laughs> with this statue, like eventually, you know, like thousands of years, you know, there'll be this statue that they dig up, archaeologists, and be like, hey, look, the guy who invented the paperclip, <laughs> you know. But yeah, so so he was Valer was granted a patent for a paperclip in Germany and in the U.S. as well. Um, and it, it's kind of like vague like if you look it up, it's so you got the the normal gem style paper clip has like the multiple loops, and Valeires just had one loop, it was just like a bent wire like in a little little square, Does and so his work. yeah, not really, Aww. not not very well, so his you can see <laughs> this is, this his is when you <laughs> we
0: use the one with a weird complicated
1: yeah. side <laughs> loop, yeah, so. And 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 the the point of this too, you might think, oh well, maybe he he developed this one, and then someone inspired created the better one in the gem paperclip. And, and no, the gem paperclip was already popular when he came out with this one. So he just came out with an <laughs> inferior one after the fact. So his his the, you can the, the principal problem is just with the one loop. What happens is it ends up you just like it's just the the strength of the metal itself for bending is what's going to hold it together. But also, it doesn't really lay flat because it is just that. So it just kind of like, it'll stick out, like the thicker the, the thing, and it'll kind of stick out. Whereas a gem paperclip, unless you go like super thick, like way oversized, will just kind of lay flat, you know, when it's holding the papers together. Yeah, and, also, and so, wait, if the first, if the crap ones, like it's just working on the tension of
0: the metal, surely yeah. once you've done, you know, oh no, I put 10 pieces of paper together. Yeah.
1: And then you want <laughs> exactly. to be like nine. That's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, this was inferior in so many ways. And so that, so that, so the gem pile because of the multiple loops actually has like uh, helps that the twisting of it kind of uh, creates like a torsion that actually kind of holds the thing to want to stay flat against the papers unless you like overload it like if you just is make like, it like way too thick. Torsion is that where it pushes because uh, I don't know. Really it's like where the expert, twist, but... like a twisting torque that makes it want to go back. Or you it's know, like pushing to the... against itself in a way, right? Yeah, exactly, and okay. so. So that, and so the gem style, that's what it does. It works really well. And it, you know, it's just superior in, in many ways. And so his design, not only that, so now let's go back to Valor's design. You might not be surprised to learn that his was never manufactured nor ever sold. He literally just had a patent for it. Like, did he even make one? I don't know in the end, but he gets all the credit. So why, I'm why is at a
0: picture of it now? <laughs> it's just, a, it's like a, a rectangle just yeah, all the way around, yeah. With one end slightly longer and looping back in itself, but not yeah. You know, no. Yeah. How do you patent
1: that? It's just a piece of wire well, that's been wrapped into a square shape. Well, he was a patent clerk, so you
0: know uh, no, he knows the
1: ways. <laughs> he knows the ways. But yeah, so so he does this. And so why why is he giving credit? So um this is a. There was a patent agency worker who actually visited Germany to register some Norwegian patents in the 1920s, and he notices this this Norwegian patent. This this guy who is Norwegian who patented this in Germany, uh, and he he assumed that Valer must have been the original designer of the paperclip, not bothering to actually look up who, who actually invented the, you know, like the dates of the fact that the other paperclip that's more commonly known design yeah, had already been around. Yeah. Yeah. And so this guy actually writes an article on it. And so this, at this point, and th- at this point, It's not like a popular article, but what happened was in the 1950s. So after World War II, so if if for people who don't know in World War II, the paperclip, the gem paperclip was actually a symbol of like, um, of the resistance groups in Norway and in France as well. And so they would actually wear this, this paperclip on their clothing because it clipped really easily. It wasn't banned and it was kind of that, that, you know, like, we're all together in this. You know, if you wore the paperclip, it was like a thing, like, you know, that person was a member of the resistance or whatever. And eventually the Germans did catch on to this and then they did ban wearing paperclips. But up until that point, it was like a, a symbol of the resistance. And so, as you can imagine, this was a symbol of the resistance in Norway. So, after the war, it made a great story to say a Norwegian had designed the gem paperclip in the first place, even though he hadn't. And again, no one bothered to do their research, but, you know, granted, they didn't exactly have Google or whatever. So, it was a little harder to dig out patents and whatnot. So, yeah, no one bothered to look, and it just kind of caught on from there. Everyone, everyone went back to this article that supposedly said this guy invented it. Everyone copied it as, as they do. It got into all the encyclopedias everywhere. And for quite a long time, he was given credit, even though he had nothing to do with it. So now, who invented the actual gem paperclip? And this, actually, it's not known the exact person who did it, but we do know kind of the rough dates. It seems like it was the gem manufacturing company in Britain, not surprisingly, in around the 1870s. And so we have the first reference to it that we have um, comes from 1883, the first written reference. Uh, and it actually is a book called The Home Library by one Arthur Penn of New York, actually. Um, and thankfully, this was digitized by Google. So we actually have uh, a quote from it here. On page 122 and 123, it states, Every library table or desk should be supplied with the, tighter,
0: with the four chief aids to the ready writer. Sheaths, paper, paste, Pins and rubber bands. The pyramid of pins is the most convenient shape in which to have pins on any desk or in a drawer for binding together papers on the same subject, a bundle of letters, or pages of a manuscript. The gem paper fasteners are better than ordinary pins.
1: Yeah, so people actually did used to use those like pins. You just like poke it through the through the paper and whatnot to hold it which together. Makes not, sense. Not ideal, be a better option. Yeah, um, and rubber bands, of course. So, yeah, and then the, it wasn't clear, though, in this one, while he's calling it the gem fastener and everything, there's still some question, is it is it the one we're thinking of it or was the gem manufacturing company making a different one at this point? But shortly thereafter, we do have an actual picture from a Cushman and Denison in New York, which is a company that made these things um, that they had an advertisement that actually shows the picture of the paperclip and uh, the advertisement reads. I'm sorry. I'm lost. (laughs) Gem Paperclip. Only satisfactory
0: device for temporary attachment of all kinds of paper. Better than pins or clamps. No mutilation
1: of papers. Quickly applied and removed. Price, 25 cents a box. Yeah, and that's about $7.05 in today's money. So yeah, so it's not really known who exactly, because nobody, the gem manufacturing company, they didn't actually patent it, which is also why so many companies so quickly were making it. But it is thought it was that, that British company, the gem Gem company that did it and uh, popularized it. And then later, layer would get all the credit for it. And that is our quick fact today. So no nice invents it. And this guy is like, yeah. essentially, you know, like you say, people are going to
0: be digging up that weird statue. Yeah. yeah. A yeah. thousand years.
1: And, and to be clear, Valair himself was dead by the time he got credit for it. So he didn't even know he would get credit for it, you know, at some point. He had already died at that point.
0: It's so bizarre. Yeah. That's our quick fact. That is our quick fact. Guys, just before we get into the rest of the show today, a quick message from one of our fantastic sponsors, Skillshare, who make this podcast possible. You've heard me, if you if you watch the YouTube channel, you've heard me talk about Skillshare before. It's a learning community. There are thousands, I think it's like 30,000 plus amazing classes on there. Creativity, entrepreneurship, productivity, ton of great stuff. And I guess video making and all of that stuff that I've done falls into entrepreneurship and creativity, I guess, and maybe even productivity. It's all on there. Uh, best thing about Skillshare is go and have a look. There's just so many classes. You want to learn something. Just go over to Skillshare. Take a look at what they've got on there. You can search for free. You don't have to sign up. Uh, better yet, actually. We got a two-month free trial. You can use that. Sign up. Try it for two months. See if they have courses you like. or You know, if you need to learn how to do something All that. Go there. And not only will you be able to see if they've got that course, you'll be able to try it. You got two months you're probably able to be completing it and moving on to something else. I've done uh, recently, I talked about on the YouTube channel recently, was a uh, a YouTube course, uh, not a YouTube course, a productivity course by a YouTuber called Thomas Frank, who's kind of got this productivity YouTube channel. He goes into a lot more depth on his Skillshare class. I'd recommend that. Like I say, two months for free. All you need to do is go to skillshare.com forward slash brain food. Go there, check it out. Really, nothing to lose, and uh, Skillshare's a good one. So go check it out. Support the show, and let's get back to it. Are our main facts similar about Because I know the title of this episode is all about the origins of things. Yes, yes, they're all
1: they're origins? all going to be the origin. We're going to move on to the to Walter Hunt, and we're going to talk about many things he invented, but also uh, the safety pin is, is kind of one of the main ones. But um, the so Walter invents everything. This is the guy that invents everything. So we only actually put, I only put like a subset and just like general of what he invented. Cause he's like, you think like some inventors, you know, it's like, Oh, they invented like in this field, you know, like if they they invent steam engines and they have all these patents on improvements to the steam engine. And this guy was not like that. This guy was just like, whatever, shy. like anything, anything you can think of. He, he was had a, he dabbled in it, you know? And and he also, he didn't seem to, I mean, he never got wealthy from it. He was, he was pretty poor um, all his life, but like he didn't really seem to focus on things that would be marketable necessarily. Like he just invented so much stuff that like a lot of it was marketable. And so he was able to sell the patents and, and make money on it. Um, but then he would just move on to the next thing. And he didn't seem to really focus on, you know, he, he didn't really seem to have that mind to be like, okay, this thing will make me a lot of money. Like he just, whatever, this, this is kind of a cool new thing I, I came up with. I feel like this is a fairly
0: epic job. Like what do you do? Oh, I kind of just go out to the shed and invent things. What sort of things? Anything I like.
1: Just yeah. Like, and when we get to sit the down
0: and play around, exactly.
1: When we get to the story of the safety pin, this was exactly what happened. Like he just sat down, played around for a few minutes and like, Oh, here we go. And it was just to solve a debt. Like he had a debt, he needed to pay it off. And so he just went out to his workshop, you know, a few minutes later, he's come up with this revolutionary new thing and just goes off and sells the patent and pays off his debt. All good. When was this? What? Like, How long? Ago? This was the, this was the 19th century. This is very cool. And we still use it. Yeah. Today. So yeah, so, uh, and like the exact same design, like people haven't modified the design at all. It's, it's exactly his. So, so Walter Hunt, no, one, no one's ever heard of this, but he is considered to be one of the finest inventive minds of, in American history, at least. So, just to give like a little, little smattering of the types of, you know, the range he was going with. So. He created the most efficient oil lamp of his age. He also, uh, attachment to boats that allowed them to break through ice, various improvements on bullet and casing designs, a rope-making machine, a machine that made nails, and improve, uh, an improved fountain pen, portable knife sharpener. This guy has like some, t- <laughs> yeah. he, he invented a time machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he come
0: back from the future and he's, he's inventing all these things.
1: Yeah, a new knife sharpener. Or, I said that one. A new, um, new type of saw, coal-heated convection oven, uh, early repeating rifle, which was another. This one was actually significant to the development of the repeating rifle, which we'll get to shortly. Um, also, this one. <laughs> one of one of my favorite. One of my favorite was the he devi- boots that allowed you to walk on the ceiling, which he called antipodian apparatus, which he sold to circuses, uh, and so in this this worked. He actually had these suction cups that were strong enough to hold like a, a full grown adult guy, and and. They were, they were designed such that if you just moved your feet a certain way, they would detach kind of like a fly. You know, that's actually how flies stick to things is they, they're actually super sticky, but if they move their foot just right, this, the adhesive doesn't stick well at yeah. a certain you know, angle of pulling. And so this is kind of the exact same type of thing he did here. And so it would unstick and, uh, they actually had, I read one, oh, I didn't put the quote, but from one, Richard Sands in a performance in London, he gave with these boots wearing, walking around on the ceiling, kind of cool. But yeah, so just like all over the place. He was all over the map in his inventions. So. This would be awesome. I want an until cool. Assis. That would be cool. But also probably like lawsuits waiting to happen as soon yeah, as you know. That's pretty dangerous. Like yeah. what happened it doesn't quite oh, he fell off the ceiling and broke his neck. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So yeah, so uh, going to the repeating rifle, which he actually called the Volitional Repeating Rifle. So he sold that patent to one George Aerosmith, who then sold it to Smith & Wesson, the founders of Smith & Wesson, I should say, uh, Benjamin Tyler Henry, Horace Smith, and Daniel B. Wesson. And so they took, his, they took his design and they basically just made some small improvements to it. And then they came out with the Henry Repeating Rifle, which was famous for its uh, pretty much ubiquitous use in the American Civil War. Um, and then... Later, that was also the basis for they improved upon it some more to make the Winchester repeatable, that's which the is a repeater. Yeah, that's like one of the most famous guns of all time. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was all kind of based, uh, the initial just improvements on his design. And then Hunt, of course, is, he's not given really any credit for any of that, more just Smith and Wesson. So, yeah, he was all over the place. So, in the born here, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, he was also born another New Yorker, uh, 1796. Uh, And he actually had almost no formal education. He just, he had some, like in his earliest years, you know, learn to read, write math and all that. Um, And then as soon as he got into his teens, he quit and then uh, went and was a farmer basically for a little while. And so he was, you know, he was good at tinkering and whatnot. So he got hired by one Willie Hoskins and Zeba Knox to help them improve. um, They wanted to make some improvement on a flax spinning machine. They were they were using, and so he helped them. And he was actually left off the patent, even though he was he was an integral part of the the design of it. But at the same time, after he did this, he started thinking about it, and he came up with an even better, like a whole new design for a flax spinning machine, which he patented in 1826. And so at this point, he did have uh, a wife. He married uh, his childhood sweetheart. He married when they were teens, and they um, at a certain point they had four children. I'm not sure how many children he had at this point, but. He's like, all right, I'm gonna make, a am gonna make a go at this. I'm gonna take this, my new, brand new, awesome flax spinning machine. I'm gonna go to New York. I'm gonna get some investors or get some a loan or something from the bank. I'm gonna manufacture this. It's gonna be great. So he goes to New York, but of course, uh, he's just like a, a hick, you know, like a farmer with no education, you know, no no well, he's credentials got a really. Stuff by this point, doesn't he? No, like this was kind of his first, his first go of things. Yeah, so he's just going to the big city, you know, country bumpkin going He'll there, gonna get it some, big. and so. Yeah, no, no investors were interested and of course banks at this time were like not. I mean banks up until the Bank of Italy, which was actually um that would become Bank of America, that's what it's known as. Banks today, which for, actually was for rich people, right? You had to have Yeah, only. <laughs> you had to be rich already or you, uh, the bank didn't want to deal with you at all. And so this had actually changed this an interesting side which we're going to cover in Christmas because it's one of my favorite uh this guy, George Bailey. Uh, you know, you know George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, right? Never seen it, but sure. No. Okay, Wait, come on! What do you expect? It's yeah. Me. Well, George Bailey, any, awesome. Any He's an awesome character, super awesome character. And you think not bridge or something? Yeah. Okay. Surely he spends his life basically helping others instead of you know helping himself when he could have helped himself uh, uh, over and over again. So he does this, and, and and this guy, the founder of Bank of Italy, which became mm-hmm. Bank of America, he founded it in the U.S. Actually he is the basis for George Bailey. And if you read up on this guy, he is George Bailey, basically. Like, and except for George Bailey, never really got, um, you know, like he, there was no point he really got wealthy. I mean, kind of at the end, he got some money, but this guy could have gotten wealthy because he did found Bank of America, but he continually, like when the board would try to give him money, he would just like, nope, I don't want it. Um, He would just donate it to charity. He had minimal salary for himself. Like his whole career, anything just went back into helping people, basically. This guy was a great guy. So we're going to cover... um, it like a, a, a heartwarming Christmas story. It is, it is. So we'll we'll cover him uh, later in in a later episode. But um, <laughs> anyways, so Hunt he goes. Banks don't want to deal with him. He's just a, a country hick. No one no one cares. And so he decides. Well, I can invent new stuff. So I'll just sell this patent. Which he had no trouble selling the patent. People wanted it. Just no one wanted to invest in him and you know him you know manufacturing it up. So he did get enough money to relocate his his family to New York with him. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to just, I'm going to create something new. So about a year later in 1827, he filed his second patent. um, This one for a foot operated gong to be fitted to carriages because he actually saw, this was kind of a a common problem, people getting hit by carriages on the road because people were sharing. And so he actually saw a little girl get killed, uh, hit and killed by a horse-drawn carriage. And so he thought, how about a foot operated gong? Because at the time they did, some carriages did have like an air horn, but you had to actually like reach and use your hand to like, you know use it to you know so people get out of the way doing something dangerous. Yeah, so he had to take your hands off the reins basically to <laughs> yeah, release yeah. one hand to make this work. And so he thought, well this isn't good. How about a foot operated gong? You know, it's just you just hit it. It's really loud and then people get out of the way. Um so especially like kids and stuff. But this nobody again wanted to invest in his idea or anything like that. But once again, someone was w- perfectly willing to give him money for the patent so they could develop it themselves. Um, and so he just sold it again and then moved on to his next invention. And he just continued doing this over and over again. It's not really clear why he never like tried, well, how about just sell part, you know, just get a little bit of money now, but then ask for royalties in future. And so the other people can develop it on the side. I mean, he never, he never tried this. It does seem strange
0: not to be like, can't I just have like 10% just, yeah. Yeah. And just like money and still have some interest in it.
1: Yeah. To do that, I'm sure he would have to, you know, accept less. And he was always kind of scraping by, like just kind of barely getting by most of the time. So this thought maybe that was his reason for he just needed as much as possible now. Or it could just be he's like, I can invent something new. Like, no problem. I'll just come up with something new so I don't need that, you know? Yeah. It's not really known. Nobody knows why he never tried something like that. Maybe he just wasn't a good businessman. Yeah. It
0: seems just like the situation demanded, like he needed money then and there to feed his family and stuff Mm -hmm. and whatever. And this what, 19th century? I'm sure it's not the best of times. Yes. So like, yeah. 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 Short term,
1: sacrificing the long term. But if you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice. Yeah. So this one, we're bringing his first world changing a patent. And th- this was the first. Uh, he did, of course, had the more like the repeating rifle and one other that we'll get to shortly. So in um, 1849, he owes draftsman J.R. Chapin. He owes him $15, which is about $422 today. And so he needs, he doesn't really have the money to pay this back. So he does what he, he does, what he does, as mentioned, he goes to his little, his workshop, he sits down and, uh, and just like whips out the a spool of wire and starts playing with it and eventually comes out with the safety pin. And now a pin, these sort of like pins for like clothing and stuff like that, they'd have been around since, I mean, all the way back to the 14th century BC there there's, you know, reference of some, but the problem was none of them had the clasp on the end. So they could poke you like if you're moving and they could fall out because they didn't have, you know, and so they're not, they're not awesome. At this yeah. point, and so he just kind of—I <laughs> don't know—you—you
0: you must have had like clothes adjusted or whatever, or had safety pins put in when you, you know, yeah, your mum would like sew your trousers up at the bottoms, you know, at the hems or whatever because they were too long for you. And it's like, don't move, and you'd move, and then you get stuck with a pin. Yeah,
1: this is this, this, <laughs> this is not a great. Solution. This is this is like the state of you know technology at the time. And so he comes up with the clasp at the end, and not only that, but he also the uh, the spring action so that it'll actually stay you know, locked in place too, even when you're moving around and stuff, so that it's not going to yeah. fall out. Like it's, it's going to be secure. It's not going to poke things you. things
0: exist that don't have the spring action. And I've used them. Like, I don't know when and where, you know, they must have come across mm-hmm. at some point in my life and it's kind of got this weird thing and then you push it yeah, and, yeah. and you loop this thing around. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I do. I've seen those. Why, why would those exist? <laughs> I have no idea, but yeah, his way, way better. No one, no one had thought of it before. He comes up with it in like literally the span of like an hour or two. So he's just playing around, and so then he, you know, does it. He goes off, sells the patent, and he gets a reported four hundred dollars for it for the patent, which is about eleven thousand uh, dollars today. And so yeah, he pays off his little debt. And this ultimately ends up in the hands of a company called the W R Grace and Company, who would go on. They paid him four hundred dollars for it. Very quickly, make millions of dollars off this product that you know he sold for four hundred dollars and asked for no royalties for again. He might just have been like a really bad businessman. You know, like he's an inventor. He needed like, he needed his Steve Jobs, you know, like to Wozniak. He's he's like the Wozniak and he had no Steve Jobs, basically. I don't Um, think
0: you see a lot of big companies making really genius products where there's not some guy who's, you know, not really a technical genius or whatever, or uh, uh, inventing genius, but he's really good at business.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's like the idea, man, like the Paul Allen to Bill Gates. I mean, Bill Gates actually did a lot more work than like a Steve Jobs, but like, you know, Paul Allen was the idea, man, you know, like. And Bill Gates was the, you know, put it, put it to work, but yeah. So he just did, he needed a partner is what he needed. So yeah, he does that. And then, um, so then he also, as I mentioned, the repeater rifle, but also also would be like, dude, what are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. You could be so wealthy right now. So the thing he actually did kind of make a lot of money off this next one. But interestingly, it's the one thing like he didn't bother patenting. And so it was kind of after the fact. So the first okay. commercially viable sewing machine that uses the two threaded lock stitch mechanism, which is like, you know, like revolutionized the industry. Uh, he invented <laughs> no idea it. What that is. <laughs> it's still commonly used today. So he actually invented, this was one of his uh, earlier ones that he actually 1833, but again, he didn't patent it. Legend has it that he didn't patent it because he didn't want to put seamstresses out of work, because he would have put a lot of seamstresses out of work. But this doesn't seem to actually be the case because he did, while he didn't patent it, he did sell it to George Aerosmith. But um, when Aerosmith tried to manufacture it and everything, he had trouble raising the capital because at the time, there was like a huge number of seamstresses and they were all working for basically nothing. Really cheaply, so no one wanted to make this sewing machine. To you know, it just seemed uh, pointless to spend all that money. And you have all this cheap labor, mm-hmm. um, so no one bothered. And Aerosmith didn't bother to patent it either. But then, dude, every his name's Aerosmith. Every time, it's like Aerosmith.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like totally. you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So over it, over it, the band Aerosmith. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much the electric guitar. But no, so about uh, about a decade later, did Elias we, Howard. Sorry, did
0: we do a video about the guy who made the electric guitar, or did we do a Ooh, podcast? We have done a video. Uh,
1: Fender, actually, for people who don't played. know, yeah, the the guy Leo Fender. He never learned how to play guitar. He was he was actually an out of work accountant from the um from the, the Great Depression hit, and he was out of work, and so he kind of had a hobby, like he you no know, formal training of doing um electronic stuff. And so he mm-hmm. thought, I can just tinker around with these I'll do a, he opened a repair shop basically and he started fixing amplifiers and stuff that are around and he thought I can I can build a better one, you know and so he did. And so he came out with the fender amp and then so it was just a natural extension to start making instruments and so he started with the guitar and it was the obviously the electric guitar the uh, stratocaster that he made and then uh, and he just used he as he was building and designing these um things uh, he just used you know musicians would come in and play and give him feedback and stuff but what he was really trying to do was the pickups on his electric guitar were really the innovation there to make like a really clear sound and everything Anyways, that's a that's a Sorry, tangent. tangent. Yeah. So so Elias Howe Jr. comes along about a decade after, after Hunt had already come up with this, mm-hmm. but not patented. Uh, and he invents, it's the exact same thing. Like you just look at the way it works. It works exactly. And it, it seemed independently. He didn't know about Hunt's thing. He came up with it on his own. But as, as happened, especially back then, but it still happens now. Just lots of companies just started using his uh, Howe's patent anyway, like yeah. without paying him. They just did it anyway. So you know, force him to sue. So the one notable one was Singer sewing machines, which is still around today. I so they started, yeah, they're probably, I don't know, the best one known one today. So house design, they just started using it. Didn't, didn't bother paying him. So how naturally all these companies are using his design, his patents. So he goes and starts suing them. But in the process of the, of the litigation, these companies come up with Hunt's previous invention that they, they comes to light and they say, Hey, he invented this exact same thing a decade before you. He didn't patent it, so we can use it and you can't do anything about it. That's so how it works. Well, I don't think it's like I think a little bit, but I'm probably not 100% because these lawsuits still continued. So, they said we don't have to pay you. So Hunt at this point, he's like, well, "Wait a minute. All these companies are using this thing that I kind of invented, you know?" Yeah. I mean, they're copying someone else, but I was the first to invent it. So maybe I can get some money out of this. So he <laughs> jumps in and starts trying to get these companies to pay him. And on the side, just in case this doesn't work out, you know, now there's money in this sewing machine. That's this now is super mess. popular.
0: This is yeah. like a real legal mess.
1: Yeah. He, he decides to come up with a brand new design because one problem that they did have with this is when you're feeding it by hand, mm-hmm. if you don't feed it at a really even rate, it, it can jam. And so he just thought, I'll just make it. So it feeds itself. Like you just put the fabric in, it's just all automatic. It just goes perfect. rate. It pulls the fabric through. Mm -hmm. So that's a great improvement to this thing. Uh, and so he he invents that and, uh, he patents it. And then he, of course, as he does, sells the patent. And you think at this point, why sell that one? You know, this is super popular and you just made it better. Why, why not just license it out? Lots of companies would have taken it, but he sells it. Um, And then, but he is still trying to get some money from his initial thing. And so in, in 1858, he finally, Singer sewing machines did say, all right. And I assume they wanted to do this just so they could show the courts, hey, the original inventor actually gave us, gave us permission here. Uh, so now you can, how you can go away. I'm mm-hmm. assuming that's why they did it, but they did offer a hunt. $50,000 settled it out of court. $50,000 is about $1.4 million today for copying his original design. And uh, then they subsequently made a fortune out of it. And so he accepted and you think okay Hunt's finally made his fortune right he's fine. he's done it he's made it and except for now he died of pneumonia shortly after they made that agreement and before the money was paid out so but he, he didn't the get money the money goes
0: to his family
1: his family got it so yeah his you know wife and kids that's it's, good it's like I- <laughs> Yeah, because kinda...
0: at least he made his million or, you know, in
1: yeah. Well, and, and with him dying, like his family no longer has his awesome inventions coming out every two seconds to support right. them. Uh, so now he's supported them from beyond the grave with this <laughs> deal. Seems like even yeah. this lasso is like quite
0: an accidental stumbling upon a ton of money. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And it's kind of funny that it was like one of the things he didn't bother patenting, you know, all these other like, had he patented, he would have just sold the patent and, you know, that would have know, been yeah. that. <laughs> it it <laughs> so, ended up worse off at the end because it had sold yes. it at like $15 or something. And then it is kind of funny if you go look at Hunt's grave marker, he's actually buried in the same. So how, how is usually given credit uh, a lot of the times for who invented this sewing machine, but it was actually Hunt. And so if you if you go to the if you go like at findagrave.com you can see their, both their graves hunt and how they're both in the same cemetery and yeah. how has this Howell mini has a monument grave yeah <laughs> yeah it's like a monument to himself and then hunt as i mean hunt a lot of people are like oh it's like a simple little stone grave no he, i mean it's like a little it's spire little, but it's yeah. it's just little and, and then you got like right, right there nearby in the same cemetery as Howe's mini monument to his his awesomeness. But, um, and also on that Howe page, like you've
0: put the the find a grave links in the notes and I went to look at the things and it says like Howe, inventor of the sewing machine. Boom! Yeah, it's the, yeah. And then uh, I can't remember what yeah, was. Hunt, and he had also invented something to do with the sewing machine, but it really sounds yeah. like Howe was the dude.
1: Yeah, it's like just some random dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, the New York Times, at least, or not sorry, like you're New York. Into the patent buying business. <laughs> yeah, uh, New York Tribune <laughs> did mention him at least when he died, but not like a lot. Like they just said, there's a little quote I put in. For more than forty years, he has been known as
0: an experiment in the arts, whether in mechanical movements, chemistry, electricity, or metallic compositions. He was always at home, and probably in all, he has tried more experiments than any other inventor. Well, yeah, I guess. You just go out to your shed, you tinker, 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 yeah. and you come away with something. I read that book about book or something about James Dyson, the guy who made those Dyson vacuum oh, cleaners yeah. and his like mm-hmm. experiments and in innovation. Interesting stuff.
1: We are gonna do uh, who invented the vacuum cleaner at some point on the in this series of uh, interesting origin of everyday things. We almost did when we were on that trip uh, going down the coast in the U.S. the West Coast. We almost stopped at that vacuum cleaner museum, but we didn't have time. I think it was in Portland oh, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, we were gonna cover that then, but yeah. in any event. That is the end of the the, the safety pin in hunts. But um, next up, next up, we're going to go to the ballpoint pen, which you'd think, you'd think the ballpoint pen, you know, you you probably got like 50 of them around you right now, even though you can't find one ever, you know? Like they're just everywhere. I
0: can see two.
1: Yeah, and they don't cost anything. Like if you just get a cheap Bic one, I mean, what do they cost? Like a dime maybe? I don't know. Both
0: of them are free. One of them's got a political party written on the side. The other one has... I can't see it, but I definitely
1: didn't pay for it. <laughs> so you'd think this thing, surely it must be easy to make or something like that. Yeah. And it turns out the craftsmanship that goes into these things is incredible, which we're going to get into. I mean, it used to be super expensive for this reason until Bic came along and figured well, out how to do it. If you ignore the price, it's, yeah. uh,
0: I mean, what was, I don't know what the alternative was before, like fountain pens or like quills or whatever people were writing with. Yeah. We used to have to write with fountain pens at school really yeah that forced
1: you you know you you couldn't use a biro or a what, what do you call them biros um we, yeah that, we'll get into why oh. you call them that but yes yeah, uh, um, yeah, or some people call them bic or just a pen you know
0: yeah we'd have to write with fountain pens at school and you could use like the replaceable plastic cartridges so you didn't have to like dip it into yeah. like uh you know and draw up the ink like you used to, have to do yeah. in the olden days we'd have to write with them and it's you know it's an ongoing saga of like, oh, my fountain pen exploded in my bag or like the ink's leaking everywhere. Or, yeah. Oh, it's just not working. Or, I ran out of ink and all of this crap. The ballpoint pen is just incredible. It's cheaper, no, And it's just, I mean, it doesn't yeah. look as nice. But.
1: No, I have a—I have like a, I don't know, it was a couple hundred dollar fountain pen I bought like ages oh, yeah. ago, just because I love the way it Mama? looks. Yeah, Yeah, I love the way it looks. And it, I love the way it writes. Like it's like when you're writing, it just like flows, the ink like flows, but then it does flow on the page and then it smears everywhere. And like like you say, you put it in your pocket and there's ink everywhere. And you're, after every time you write with it, you're, there's ink all over your fingers and hands and um, even, even at
0: university, when obviously you could write in buyer if you wanted, I'd still use a fountain pen for exams because mm-hmm. you can write faster with a fountain pen.
1: Yeah, and it's, it is. It's so smooth and yeah. But anyway, so <laughs> going back to this ballpoint. Like so, sorry, I like that you have a
0: fancy fountain pen. I, I, I love like that to film. get a fancy fountain pen. That's cool.
1: <laughs> it is. And then you, like, uh, one time I actually ordered off Amazon, like one, like just one, it was, it said like six pack, but they sent me like six of the six packs. And I I was like, you know, I'll return it whatever. I, yeah, and they were like, nah, just keep it. <laughs> All right, cool. So Wait, it was like a lifetime one, of supply the of the ink. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the ink, which is, it was, yeah, I have a lifetime supply basically. From this one order but yeah you can swap out the ink i love i love that thing but anyways going back to the to the ballpoint pen so this thing this thing so the the little balls in them are made of tungsten carbide which is the same thing as like armor piercing bullets and they are so highly polished they're polished with paste made from diamonds um is how they polish these things up and they're so highly polished that you need an electron microscope to see the defects in them Whoever's doing
0: the marketing for byros or whatever needs to up their game made with diamonds. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a problem. Bullets.
1: It's a problem of the price. You think it's so cheap. They're so ubiquitous everywhere. You think it's like this cheap, easy to easy to make thing. Uh, and, it, and it's just, you know, it's a little bit like our like the videos. When you do like daily videos off many channels, everyone's like, oh, you're probably just throwing that together. It's taking <laughs> you two seconds. It's like, no, that's not how we put just as much effort in. We just have a lot more people working on it. Um, There's an economic others of
0: this that I can't remember where it's what water is and diamonds and water are often given the examples like water is has a huge utility to us like water is really useful we really need that but it's free whereas diamonds other than industrial uses funnily enough are like yeah they're not there's pretty much zero utility of a diamond like a decorative diamond but it's incredibly expensive like this thing has a name i don't know what Mm -hmm. it is but
1: so they do, they polish Great these podcast, things up. Simon. <laughs> Great work. So the, the the space in between the, so they put it in that little socket, you know, like the little pen thing. So they put the little, the bearing in there uh, and it has to be within one one thousandth of a centimeter to get it to work right to it. So it basically makes like a basically airtight seal. So the, so the ink doesn't dry out and doesn't just leak out. And so the space has to be so small that the ink doesn't leak and all that. But if there is any flaws, it will it, the seal won't work and it'll leak and it won't write correctly. And so they, if they find a flaw in one, so I, I'm I'm guessing they don't actually look at every single bearing coming through the line. But if they do, because if they do find a flaw in one, they end up throwing out the whole batch and then they just you know just in case. get rid of that just in case there was any flaws in any of the others. So they do this and uh, yeah. So any imperfections, it's out. And so that so how does how does actually the pin work? And it's actually pretty simple. So it's just it's just gravity, and the, it, as it's rolling, and it's got that airtight seal, it just kind of pulls the ink, drags it along, pulls it out, and so it's nice, but it doesn't leak. Uh, it's it's just real nice, except for you do need gravity. So we we did cover this part a little bit. So you do have the space pens, and you've seen this. Like we have a, what episode was that? Epic space oh, series I a, part four. I a space pen at some point. I like that. Yeah, space pen. I, yeah, I also have one of them. It is nice because you can write upside down and all that business, which but, is very so, useful. I mean,
0: because I'm often using my antipodian boots, so yeah. Having the space pens incredibly useful for those situations.
1: Yeah. And it also works in like, I can't remember, it was crazy, like up to like 400 degrees Fahrenheit and negative 50 degrees or like... And it, you can write in it's... oil
0: as well, which is often, you know, something I'm, in, you know, in situations <laughs> like that. Mostly when yeah. I'm off doing my six months on the oil rig.
1: <laughs> yeah. So... Handy. So, yes. <laughs> the, but uh, know I'm being sarcastic, but I do like it. It is, And it's a great yeah. looking pen. <laughs> It is. They they look nice and they're not super expensive. So there is, I just wanted to briefly mention, we did like the full on like how how this space pen came to be in the Epic Space Series Part 4. But so there's that rumor that NASA spent like millions of dollars to develop a pen instead of, you know, the Soviets used a pencil. And it's like, haha, how stupid is NASA? But no... The NASA used a pencil too. Soviets used a pencil. They didn't like using the pencil. Like there was problems with this in space with the wood shavings and the graphite and stuff is electrically conductive and you got wood shavings going into panels. And yeah, that's I just remember not some
0: quote from NASA, like, yeah, when you break off a
1: bit of a pencil in a spacecraft, yeah, like, it's just floating around and getting jammed <laughs> it's up in the electronics. Not great. Yeah. Or like in your eye. It's not. It's not <laughs> awesome. And so... So the, the rumor is, of course, that they spent millions of dollars and they did not spend uh, hardly any money. So it was actually Paul C. Fisher who had already come out with uh, this pen and it was, he called it the AG7 at the time. And he went to NASA and said, hey, I got this pen. I think it could be useful for you in space because it doesn't need gravity. It's a ballpoint pen that doesn't need gravity. You can write in space. It's got this special ink that works in extreme you know, circumstances, environments uh, that, that he formulated. And so NASA, they tested it out really thoroughly and they were like, yeah, we want it. But they didn't want to pay the full price of $3.98 per pen. So they wanted they wanted a discount if they bought... I think they bought Classic NASA,
0: so cheap. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, they wanted... I think they bought four. Yeah, 400 of them. Uh, and so he ended up giving them to $2.39. And honestly had they pushed it that was about $17.42 today but had he pushed it i mean i'm sure he would have given them to him for free because nasa using your pen in their space program this is this is like free marketing this is like the best marketing of all time especially at this point they you know nasa because i
0: know like people weren't so keen on nasa at some point right because they were spending
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and this was during the space race there is that sort of Perception that everyone was like, "Yeah, we're doing this," you know, greatest generation, and all that sort of stuff. And it was like, no, the the public actually were quite against it, and it was really just kind of the government pushing it anyway, just as a you know, we're going to one up the Soviets thing. But it, actually, the public was quite against the spending; thought it was out outlandish, and no, there was no reason to go to moon and all that sort of business. No, Which is well, why I, mean, once... I, I get it. Like,
0: if you've got a, yeah, big... a contract from NASA and they've come and they're like, "Hey, we want to buy your pens," I'd be like, "Sweet," and then you don't want to give it up.
1: Yeah. So they did buy 400 of them. And so it was a nice little thing, but of course did the real money. And it was the, um, was after the fact when with the advertising, cause it's literally called the space pen now. Like, I mean, that's what they call it. Yeah. The Fisher company. Yeah. Great advertising. And the Soviets of course picked it up by 1969. They were also using the space pen instead of pencils because it was just way better. But yeah. So if you want more details on the whole story and the development of that, you can go listen to the Epic Space Series part four on the Brain Food Show podcast which you can find anywhere.
0: The, uh, the the Russian pencil one and the the space pen is it's one of those examples of why people don't like me anymore. Like <laughs> ever since just doing so many videos about facts and stuff you'll be in the pub, yeah. you know, and someone will be like, "Oh, you know about the Russian." And it's not not this one, but anything like this. They be like, "Well, actually the uh, the Russians they are, you know using pencils was a terrible idea." And then people are like I'm just, Whatever
1: <laughs> you don't you don't want to be that guy. No, you just you keep don't your want mouth to be shut. That guy. I tried. To stop or being that guy. <laughs> just
0: worked like, you know? so much.
1: Made a video about that. Just worked so much that so you never go out and do anything with anyone, and then you. That's don't, true. I'm almost you there. Don't have that problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've already achieved that level. So my, it my works wife out. just tells me to shut up. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, naturally. <laughs> so so yes. Going back to this, the the other thing about this space pen, getting it for the two thirty-nine, or even the $3 and what was it, 98 cents, uh, that it was the retail price at the time. It turns out just about, it was two decades before this to buy a ballpoint pen, because I mean, they are like this, just a regular ballpoint pen, you know, this is the gravity time. They cost when adjusted for inflation about $100. So that was about five or 10 times what the Fisher space pen cost in the mm-hmm. 1960s. So about $100 per ballpoint pen. At this point so they, they were this is a pricey purchase um so things all changed starting with one marcel bick in the mid-1950s but before we get to him in
0: the past where you have something that's completely ordinary it's like yeah biro
1: <laughs> yes <yeah>, but Byro, <laughs> rich So man, like microwaves rich man <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's we're gonna instead of bick we'll start with laszlo biro so biro was like, uh laszlo you know, is an epic name it is. Do you think that's how that's pronounced with all those accents? I'm pretty sure it's uh, that. Oh, Hungarian oh, wow, Hungarian. Man, so cool. that would that
0: be a little bit like Czech, would you? No, it's different. It's no, right it is. different. Hungarian's kind yeah. of a unique language. It doesn't really share any other uh basic oh, languages. That's weird. Uh, you know they fun fact, often when they make movies and they have, you know, aliens speak, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, they don't speak English or whatever. They'll use Hungarian yeah. as the language that the aliens speak. Because they don't want to invent the whole alien language and no one outside of Hungary speaks Hungarian.
1: And it'd be interesting enough. to do like where the if we wanted a video that got no views, where did the Hungarian language come from? <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: congratulations for <laughs> this video. When you log into that YouTube dashboard and it tells you how your latest video is performing to all your other videos <laughs> these days, just to make you feel sad. <laughs> that was, I don't that know was why like they the... started doing that. <laughs> like this video is po- performing very poorly compared to your recent videos
1: poor Thanks, youtube poor, poor larry dobby who everyone knows jackie robinson like you'd probably at least heard of jackie robinson you don't even know baseball on, but you probably heard like, of jackie no, robinson right know, jackie really robinson. really okay well, well we everyone baseball at all i would think even he would be because you know he'd like transcended baseball in a lot of ways but if i uh, told you about some cricketer
0: who broke boundaries would you? I mean, I don't know, yeah. it, of course, because I sports, did any quick
1: You would hate <laughs> <Great> boundaries, <know. laughs> but yeah. So, but everyone's her of Jack and then poor Larry Dobby, same season. He's there. He's doing it on the the, the other circuit, the other was league. His name Dobby, because uh, I spent the whole video pronouncing it Dobby. <laughs> it could have been Dobby. I, I always thought it was Larry Dobby. Like, this would be funny because even we don't. Even, we're the ones <laughs> no who did no the one thing. Knows. We don't even know how to pronounce his name. this, and this, and this video second, didn't. This was the second black guy to play professional yeah. baseball and he put up with all the same stuff jackie robinson at the same time like the same year so he <laughs> there's the two of them and they were you know they were calling each other supporting each other and everything you know like every night like hey you know we're doing this and everything. but you know you be and he was a great player he was a great player in his own right as well like super awesome not sure if he went into the hall of fame i think he might have but Either way, we did this video on him. Even the video covering like the forgotten heroes, Larry. And that, what did it get? Like it was probably one of our lowest video views of all time. It was definitely <laughs> like even got performing poorly <laughs> back to you. you this was like else? a video from like when we first launched the channel level of views, and it was like well, poor guy. Even and then we try to feature him, and even then, no one cares. You just don't want to be saying, it's like, it's like, a, who, who is the, who are, who are the people in Apollo 12? Does
0: anyone remember? No. Dude, who was <laughs> the really. third guy on Apollo 11? Do people really know the name Michael Collins? Yeah. Even, even, even then. Yeah. But I like, think, I think if you ask people on the street, what's Buzz Aldrin famous for? Yeah. I, you would be surprised at the number of
1: people who would go, isn't he an, he's an astronaut, right? Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. Whereas Buzz Neil Aldrin's is a cool guy. Buzz Aldrin's a legend. Uh, yeah, you go look up some of his stories with him and he's still around. We should just go back to the interview format for like one episode just to see if we could get him on because he would be fun to talk to. I think to Buzz you. Aldrin would be a bit of a get. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He seems to do a lot of, like he, I mean, he showed up to that one guy for the, the thing. Just make it a charity thing. You know, but... Wait, but uh, the the guy, the guy who he punched. You know, that was supposed to be like a thing for kids. So he just showed oh, up, was. like he literally in person, and then and then it turned out to be fake. Which is also another reason why he was so angry in the first place, because you know he taken he taken his day off to go do this oh, thing, I and it's just know like it a lie.
0: setup. I thought he had just bumped yeah. into him.
1: No, the, and this guy, this guy had also, I think, harassed him before and everything. So it wasn't. And the guy does it. Like, go watch the video of that. Oh no, th- yeah. yeah I if really you're gonna punch someone, guy. that's the guy. You watch the video of the actual interaction. it's like I think, like everyone would have punched that guy. I don't care if you're like a normally violent guy or, or not. Like you know, yeah, it seemed like a a right cock. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But either way, we should go back to pens. That was a, <laughs> yeah, that was sorry. Did we, get all,
0: did we get there from the weird name,
1: Laszlo? is <laughs> that? Might be yeah, a we should, for tangents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Hungary, 1931. Yes. Byro observes, he's he's he uh, works at a newspaper. And so he's, he, this ink, right? It dries almost instantly that they use in the printing presses. And so he's like, why can't we get this ink for like a fountain pen so we can get rid of this problem of, you know, ink smudging everywhere. So you write and then it just dries instantly. It's not smudging on your hand and everything, which particularly if you're like a lefty, I mean, that must have been like fountain pens would have been a nightmare for a left-handed writer mm. at that time. Unless I guess oh, you're like right, Hebrew you're or something. The <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe if you're jewish or something it's okay but then then for the right-handers but, oh, but yeah so God. all right so uh he's thinking so can we do this he tries it it doesn't work out it's not working so then he enlists in 1938 his chemist brother i don't know yori maybe sure it's g-y-o-r-g-i-y uh so he invests in, in, in enlists him just call and enlists him and george <laughs> yeah yeah maybe uh so they they try to come up with this and uh, they do end up coming up with a, an ink. Th- um, or sorry, they don't. And so then they they end up coming up with something that does work though in a ballpoint pen, which he patents uh, in June fifteenth, nineteen thirty eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is this is the first commercially viable ballpoint pen. So there had been some ballpoint pens before that, but for instance, uh, eighteen eighty eight, there was one John J. Loud, who he his his idea he wanted something that could write on leather. Cause fountain pens wouldn't, wouldn't write on leather well. And so he, he came up with this, but his didn't work well, lack of interest. It wasn't commercially successful. It, it you know, it wasn't a good design because okay. as we discussed, ballpoint pen's kind of hard to get to work. Uh, so, and there was others that came along and all of them had problems with ink flow, clogging, leaking, all that. So it was, um, it was biro or biro, biro, right? We say biro. Okay. Yeah. Biro, he, he ends up, you know, him and his brother come up with the, with the first commercially viable one that works, you know, reasonably well. So Now in like Europe and stuff, he's probably the one given credit, but in, in, um, mostly for the, for the invention, but in the U S most people think of like Bic, right? This guy who, who actually came along second. Yeah. We could, we might say Bic as
0: well. Oh yeah. Or like I'm familiar with the brand. They also make razors, right? Uh, yes.
1: Yes, they do. Those cheap, those cheap razors, which is, they will cut your face up (laughs) (laughs) pretty much. But yeah, this but you can buy them for a dollar shape. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy them for almost nothing, just like their ballpoint pens. So the problem with with Byro's pens were they were ludicrously expensive at the time, even though you know they worked pretty good. So they were actually used. Uh, his pens were used, uh, if you were wealthy, you could buy them. and uh, like the British air force also was was used them a ton, so because they had trouble with fountain pens, apparently at high altitudes like flying a jet like hold <laughs> yeah. on i got a leak yeah, they, do, they apparently don't work well at high altitudes so this ballpoint pen and everything so bic comes along though bic and he buys the patent from from biro and he starts his own factory he buys a rundown factory in france actually uh and and buys the patent from bic or um, biro and then he goes along and he does you know proprietary so i'm not quite sure uh how his his system worked uh, but he came up with basically a, a means to mass produce these things to extremely high quality, to just completely put everyone else out of business who was making uh, ballpoint pens at the time, because he could do it. What was it? One three hundredth of the cost is what he could sell his pens for Whoa. from all the other ballpoint, and they were and It wasn't normally, you know, you if you're going to go cheap, it's going to be crappy quality. But no his were actually better quality than a lot of the manufacturing at the time using whatever wizardry he did with his mass producing yeah, machinery. mass production. Like, yeah, he just waved his hand and was like, yeah, "I'll just will just make it, you know, way cheaper and better somehow." So yeah, they were now, you know, eventually you get to the point where you're, they're selling for pennies instead of like many dollars and uh, yeah, and or like a, a $100 adjusted for inflation. So yes. He dominates the industry from then on, and, and it's pretty much been the same ever since. So why there. do we still call them BIROS? I don't know. Well, It's interesting because both of these guys were European. So I don't know.
0: And it just, this guy came along later and just seemed to absolutely yeah.
1: dominate. Yeah. He just put everyone else out of business, basically. Yeah. Um, well, you call them for,
0: looks, right? Primarily.
1: For, oh, well, I think I'd just call it a pen. Like I wouldn't really even, but some people do. Some people do. Someone hands
0: you a, a BIC and you're like, I meant a fountain pen. <laughs>
1: yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't look funny at someone if they were like, "Hey, can you hand me the bick or whatever?" Like, oh, okay. But although people do say, for like speaking of the razor, I, I've heard people will say like you're bicking it when you're you know shaving with the cheap razor. I've heard that's like an uh, as an expression. So I don't yeah. like that one.
0: Yeah, yeah. I remember once but, I had a big beard, and I shaved it off with a big razor. Yeah. <laughs> kind of rough.
1: You know, what's funny is there's this picture of you. Uh, so. A couple of years back, uh, I don't know, on your Airbnb page, it's not there anymore, right? Your profile, oh you Airbnb, had this picture, yeah, yeah where you're, your full head of hair, and it was just so hilarious because it's like. You had like long hair yeah, and it's like flowing in the wind. You were like on, I think you were like someplace tropical on a boat or something. And it's like flowing in the wind and you're so happy with your full head of hair. And it's just, yeah, now I, I really smile think. smile anymore. Yeah, I really think you should put that as your profile picture like everywhere because it's just, it, you're just like, you got this flowing long hair. I grew it's it great. all.
0: I grew it all and then I ran out.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, no, I used to have long hair. It's awesome.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that uh, is the memories. <laughs> that is episode one today and we are gonna go on momentarily to episode
0: two. Thank you everybody for listening. This has been an episode of the Brain Food Show, part one of our fascinating origins of everyday things. Part two, mm-hmm. coming up real soon. If you're like watching five or ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you're if you're watching live five or ten minutes, if you're listening on podcast, probably next week. <laughs> yeah, most likely. Yeah. Uh thank you everybody for listening please do leave us a review wherever you uh, listen to your podcasts. That would be great. And uh, we'll see you soon.
1: Great Great work.